Hello, humans, hello, humans, hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug. Ellie 2.0 Radio from the lovely AM 950 in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, part of the greater, larger Twin Cities. How are you today? How are you? First Saturday of November. There we are. Um, And by the way, this is episode 199, if you can believe that, 199 of Ellie 2.0 Radio. I mean, that means next week is show 200. (laughs) And to commemorate that show, um, I'm going to have uh, Dr. Kurt Nelson back. Uh, He helped us with show 150. I figured, hey, 200, be good to have Dr. Kurt Nelson come back. We might also have a special guest. I don't know. I'm working on that. We will see who can uh, be in tandem with Dr. Kurt and me. Uh, We'll see. We'll see. If not, it's uh, Dr. Kurt by himself is unbelievable. So you get to look forward to that. If you are on Facebook Live right now or if you watch this <laughs> on Facebook after it's recorded, I don't know if you can tell, but down below this table <laughs> that I'm leaning my elbow on is Jack the dog. Jack the golden retriever, my pup. Last time he was in this station was about four about four months ago, and he was about forty pounds lighter than he is right now. Um, you may hear him from time to time because he is chomping on a chew. Uh, that's my way of keeping Jack occupied. But uh, let me just tell you, I love that boy. I cannot believe how he has grown on me. And how important he is to me. Okay, I'll get emotional about that. All right, for this week, as usual, uh, we have a great show. The big interview will be a reprise of my January interview of Keith Mays, a University of Minnesota professor of uh, who teaches uh, African-American history. And he is going to talk about structural racism. You, That was a great interview. Keith Mays, one of my favorite people in the world. And uh, I'm giving you that reprise of Dr. Mays because Tuesday's election, you know, Tuesday like four days, five days ago, um, in Virginia, those results as well as school board uh, results, as well as how close it was in New Jersey, but particularly the school board results. I mean, like down in Southlake in, in Texas, they voted out the people who wanted to teach about diversity and inclusion and they brought in – They voted in people who don't want any of that. And so I thought it was a little bit fitting for us to be reminded about structural racism in America. Okay, and in my – so Dr. May is going to help us with that. In my C block, I'll talk about uh, um, uh, a new phrase that I learned uh, this week. So there you go. But here in the A block, let's talk about our featured idealist of the week. You might not recognize his name, but I will guess you will at least have heard – about his incredible mission. I am speaking of uh, Boyan Slat, Boyan, B-O-Y-A-N, Slat, S-L-A-T, born in the Netherlands in 1994, meaning that like right now, he's just 27 years old. He has made it, Boylan Slat has made it his mission to rid the world's ocean of plastic waste pollution. Nah, you might not know the name, but now you're knowing about this guy. This idealist. You may have recently seen stories about a huge contraption of floats that that nets 
uh, and huge Ellie Reacher Reacher show notes, please. A huge contraption of floats and nets that successfully captured twenty thousand pounds of plastic from the Pacific Ocean. Who is Boyan Slat? Well, how did a young human get involved in such a gigantic idealistic enterprise? Well, according to Wikipedia, in 2011, when Boyan was just 16 years old, he went diving. And as the story goes, he found more plastic than fish. And that caused him to start thinking about ways to clean up the ocean. I I kid you not. By the time Boyan was 18 years old, he had already given a TED Talk about building a passive plastic catchment system using circulating ocean currents to net plastic waste. A year later, at age 19, Boyan founded a nonprofit organization named The Ocean Cleanup with the goal of developing advanced technologies to rid the world's oceans of plastic. Using crowdfunding, The Ocean Cleanup was quickly able to raise $2.2 million with the help of 38,000 donors from 160 countries. Now talk about a footprint. A year later in 2014, I mean, at this point, he is barely 20 years old. The Ocean Cleanup issued a 528-page feasibility study declaring that, yes, it was actually possible to build a system to catch ocean-borne plastic. The study wasn't universally accepted, however, and a number of critics called it unfeasible. And I'm positive that Boyan's age played into that. I'm also positive that the gigantic idea, which seems incredible that you would even attempt to rid the ocean of plastic, seemed overwhelming. Nonetheless, the ocean cleanup continued to raise millions from entrepreneurs in Europe and Silicon Valley. Using that money... And the recognition of what sounds like a crazy idea, Boyan and his team built what they called System 001, only to test it out. So that was a system of floats and, and, um, and webbing, only to test it out in the, in the ocean and for it to fall apart. Undeterred, okay, now, see, this is one of the things about idealists. You're persistent. You don't give up. And undeterred. Boylan and his team went back to the drawing board and came up with a revived design. Now, understanding that this is radio and not TV, okay, I'd like you to listen to the description of how um, System 002 works, okay? And um, they, they, call it, uh, they call it Jenny. Um, Brett, go ahead and play that clip, would you please? So Jenny is a 800 meter long floating barrier which we towed through the water. The barrier is three meters deep in the water. It's completely open at the bottom which is important because it allows fish to escape and it has flotation along the top which helps it to keep its shape. And it's connected at each end to one of these vessels, the one that I'm standing on here and also the vessel that you can see behind me. Those vessels are moving ahead at a very slow speed. It's about one and a half knots which is less than two miles an hour. As we move through the plastic and through the water, then you get a natural flow of water caused by that that movement, and the the plastic is carried along those two barriers, which we call wings, uh, on each side, and it's transported to a a central area, and there's a a collection area, which we call the retention zone, in in the middle of that U-shape. So all of the plastic flows along, it flows into that retention zone, and that enables us, after a certain time, maybe once a week, to, to bring the two vessels together, hand one wing of Jenny to the other vessel so they're holding both 
and the other vessel can go around to the back of the system uh, and pick up the retention zone which has all the plastic inside. Then we take the plastic from the retention zone, empty it all out onto the deck, we separate it into different materials according to different recycling streams, we package it up and we take it back onto shore and then we can send it for recycling. Right again, radio not TV. Although all you have to do is Google Jenny. Okay, the uh, you know uh, the the ocean um, uh, cause and and uh, and Google Jenny and you'll come up for you. Okay, but all right, that thumping, all of that noise that you heard was of huge amounts of plastic. I mean, the in the video, I mean, what I saw, what you see, I mean, I saw plastic laundry baskets. These are, I mean, laundry baskets, huge plastic balls, all kinds of other plastic crap and bottles and all that kind of stuff. This system, the Jenny, picks it up. In addition to the ocean, by the way, that was not um, Boyan that you heard. It was an engineer, but it was part of his team. I just need to make sure you understood that. In addition to the ocean, Boyan has set his sights on rivers, which empty into the ocean. His team has estimated that 1,000 rivers contribute 80% of the plastic pollutants to the ocean. So the ocean cleanup has created the Interceptor. They come up with these names, okay? The Interceptor, which is a barge placed um, in the river with long barrier of floats and um, webbing that guides plastic into a conveyor on the barge. The barge then fills and ultimately goes to shore where the plastic is offloaded to a truck. Uh, the, uh, the barge is solar-powered, okay? And currently there are three interceptors, three test interceptors out in the world, one in Jakarta, Jakarta, Indonesia, another one in Malaysia, and a third one in the Dominican Republic. The goal is to have interceptors on 1,000 rivers in five years. Now, I know that sounds like incredible. How could that be? Don't underestimate Boylan, okay? Now, again, I want to remind you that this has all happened due, due to his foresight, his drive, his determination, and he's not yet even 30 years old. That is pretty incredible. Boylan Slap. Super. Duper. Duper. Idealist. And given the challenge about the ocean being polluted by plastic, we need that. We need somebody who dreams as big as he does. Okay, there you go. That's our featured idealist. Uh, we're going to do this, uh, the, the big interview. It's a reprise of my interview of Dr. Keith Mays. You will like it. He is engaging, and uh, what he has to say is darn important. I'll see you on the other side with the C Block. Thanks.
And we're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. Now, uh, listeners, for those of you who are new to the show, uh, this is the big interview. I always attempt to have an idealist on the show, and my goodness, today we have quite the idealist. Um, I want to introduce you to Dr. Keith Mays, that's M-A-Y-E-S, who is uh, a professor at the University of Minnesota. He has his Ph.D. from Princeton University, his undergraduate degree from City University in New York. And Dr. Mays is an expert on a number of things. Things, including race in the news, black men, civil rights policies, black, the black power movement, social and racial justice policy outcomes and movements. He is also the author of a number of books, and I'm going to give him a chance to say what those are. Dr. Mays, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? I'm doing great, Ellie. How you doing? Thank do, you for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so very much for being on the show. Now, Dr. Mays, we need to explain to the audience how I know you and how we have befriended each other. Um, you and I, about two months ago, had the good fortune of being paired on a on a speaking event um, to a bunch of lawyers. I mean, over 400 attorneys, and um, you you uh, were the first speaker, which was never, you know, I'm not bad, okay? But you are not the kind of guy anyone should ever follow, all right? <laughs> because you you spoke about um, uh, racial injustice. You spoke about disparities and, and um, structural racism in the Twin Cities area, particularly from a historical context. And I, when I saw you, I've just got to tell you, I said, oh, I've got to have this – this wonderful human on my radio show because you are such an idealist. And so um, so welcome to the show. Let's just kind of dive into it. You have this wonderful background about understanding American history as it has um, dealt with often woefully um, with uh, black people. And um, tell us about in the Twin Cities in particular – can you paint the picture for us about how the last hundred years have gone? So we just entered twenty-one. Take us back to the twenties of the nineteenth of the twentieth century. What was it like if you were black or brown in the Twin Cities at that time period? Well, thank you, Ellie, for the very kind words. I appreciate that. Um, so I um, would say that's a really good question, and, and the, the easiest way to answer the question is to to say that the black experience in the Twin Cities mirrored the other experiences of black folks around the country in the 20th century. So I know there's a narrative out there about the upper Midwest and Minnesota in mm -hmm. particular being some kind of racial nirvana, and – and, and, and not to say that it wasn't different in the upper Midwest uh, if you compare uh, this particular geography with the South. And it, indeed, it was different. So not to um, oversimplify that. But the, the reason why I say that it mirrored – the black experience mirrored other experiences of black folks around the country was because Jim Crow and white racism was the same all over the place. That's to say that, yes, we can see some stark differences when it comes to racial disparities and the way in which black folks were treated in places like the Deep South that you didn't see elsewhere. But I always like it to look at 
four or five key areas. And when you look at education, housing, employment, and so many others, and we've added to that now to look at incarceration rates, home ownership, so we can actually uh, disaggregate and look at other areas. But in the in the three to four to five main areas, you see that black folks suffer similarly that in many ways you had a de jure educational system in the South, which meant you had total black exclusion from public schools and you had de facto in the North. But de facto in the North, even in Minneapolis, resulted in black folks being excluded from most white schools, from most white institutions. And so I'm using I can use schools. I can use any white institution as a metaphor to describe the entire experience of black folks. So we're talking about if that complete exclusion uh, like the South, you have maybe one or two or three black folks in some white institutions, whether it be the workplace, whether it be schools, whether it was in white neighborhoods. So you had the same effect in the way in which white oppression shaped the lives of black people <laughs> in Minnesota to have the same outcomes that resulted in the same disparities and inequalities from the early 20th century coming all the way up to the mid the mid 20th century. And, and when I say mid, yes, the civil rights movement in the country as it did in the cities, cities being Minneapolis and St. Paul, will change the dynamic in the way that black people live their lives. So it opened up some white spaces in Minneapolis and St. Paul. But the structural aspects still remain the same. It just meant that you just had, I just, I, t- I used a metaphor sometimes in class of a turnstile. You just have more black and brown people able to come through the turnstile after the 1960s. They weren't, they didn't come through the turnstile in droves. Right. But they were not tokenized in the same way. You didn't have one or two. So you just had a few more because the civil rights movement did the same thing for black folks in the Twin Cities as it did for black folks across the country. But when we – but when you – well, we'll get – well, let's just – when we get to current day, okay, when you say a few more, I mean – but still, uh, late uh, 20th century – uh, we still have black folks who maybe are coming through the turnstile, but they're not going to the same destination. Absolutely, as, uh, Absolutely. as white colored people. Um, but Keith, bef- uh, Doctor Mays, before we get to that, um, when you de- did your presentation a couple of months ago that I was able to witness, there was something that just really grabbed me about how Minneapolis, in particular, went out of its way to create white spaces where black and brown folk and then for that matter, you know, some other uh, groups that have been targeted like Jews, Jewish folks were not allowed. And um, and you know what? We're going to come up on a break. So before uh, before you get into that, I want you to kind of nibble on that because, you know, I'm, I'm starting to talk about Nokomis, okay, and um, what uh, what you found. Um, and so what we're going to do is take the break because otherwise I'm not going to be able to – I don't want to cut you off when you start talking about this. By the way, when you start speaking and you've already started doing it a little bit, it is 
like a revival. I just love listening to you wind <laughs> up. I'm just telling you, okay, Dr. Mays, I just I love listening to how. All right, so listeners, when we come back, we're going to speak with Dr. Uh, Keith Mays from the University of Minnesota. He's going to talk more about structural racism, historic and present. If you like what you hear on this show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. I love hearing from listeners, and you can follow me on Twitter. The handle is at elliekrug. We'll be back in a second. And we're back on LE 2.0 Radio on the lovely AM 950. Um, before we took the break, we were speaking with Dr. Keith Mays, who teaches at the University of Minnesota. He teaches African-American and African uh, studies at the U. He is highly in demand at the U because his students love him. And by the way, he also speaks privately, and, and we'll talk about that uh, b- before we end the show. Dr. Mays, before we took our break, I started down the road, and I didn't give you enough lead time, about talking about, in particular, how Minneapolis started shaping neighborhoods so that they were exclusively for whites. And I had asked you to specifically talk about the area around Lake Nokomis. What did you – you did some research – and what what kind of a advertisement did you find for property around Lake Nokomis in the ni- early 1920s? Well, let me just give a little plug here. Uh, the, the the major uh, findings for the research is coming from Mapping Prejudice at the University of Minnesota. Who's done a wonderful job yep. going back almost virtually by hand to find properties that had these racial racially restrictive covenants on them, going all the way back to the second decade of the 20th century. And Nokomis was the first area to put these on. And, and I, as I, I say to, to students uh, all the time, you know, you're driving around the streets of Minneapolis and you, you have no idea the kind of racial history that exists. You know, if you drive up and down Cedar Avenue, as we uh, are apt to do all the time, or Chicago or Portland, and you go into uh, southern Minneapolis, uh, and we, we have a kind of an idea about South Minneapolis as being a, a black and brown neighborhood, but it, it, that's not where all of the action took place. I mean, I, and I have a New York-centric uh, ge- geography in, in my mind. So when you say South Minneapolis, you're talking about, you know, south of, of um, you know, of 50th Street, as it were. So right. you go down from yep. 50th all the way back to Highway 62, uh, as west as you know, Lake Harriet, coming all the way back to Nokomis, that, air, that whole entire area had these racially restrictive covenants on it where blacks could not move into. Uh, they would not allow them to move into that area. And these homes are really, you know, still really nice today. Many of them are, are really modest and small, but that was a white enclave, and and it remained that way all the way through the 1960s. And and arguably, you know, it's funny, that area south of of 50th Street is still uh, relatively white, whereas north of 50th is where you get the mix. You know, so from 50th up to even past Lake Street is what people reference as South Minneapolis, right? The kind of the diversity that's celebrated and that black folks, because they were shut out 
uh, of the area in Nokomis. They actually built that enclave uh, up and around Chicago uh, and and the, the, the now the famed 38th in Chicago because of the murder of George Floyd. That was the heart of the black neighborhood because they were they were segregated. They were hemmed in to that area. And and so, of course, they made they created a hybrid community uh, in the early and mid 20th century. Uh, and then the sort of the outlying areas around the lakes uh, remain uh, white. And that's true also for, like I said, Harriet and Lake of the Isles and Calhoun. I mean, all these places become um, white geographical spaces uh, to the exclusion of people of color. So now, that's a story that's that's told. Uh, so many different times in other parts of the country. That's why I said that Minneapolis is not unique, right? In that, in that. Well, area. I know, but there. I mean, still, there are many in many in Minneapolis, Twin Cities, Minnesota. Who believe you know we were different, um, but right. but I recall from your presentation. I mean, you literally showed an advertisement from 1921 or 22, advertising lots around Lake Nokomis, You know. Mm-hmm. And in that advertisement, it specifically said for whites only. Yes. And that, yes. And that you know, uh, people of other skin colors and, and Jewish people were excluded from this. I mean, this was like promoting it like, hey, come here, white people, because exactly. it's only going to be white people. Now, that is what blew me away is that it was yes. so – I mean, you talk uh, – and Dr. Mays, you talk about racial covenants, but many people are like, well, that was something, you know, that somebody – that." showed up on a you know a mortgage or a deed somewhere but you know they really didn't know about it. but these were ads that like come yes. here i mean yes <laughs> yes in, in 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 the newspapers um uh being told um uh by neighborhood associations so all the things that we that that keep us civically engaged Yes, those were people. So it was. It's, it's hard for us to. To I mean, maybe it's not hard now because the Trump era is reminding us that, you know, mm-hmm. this stuff was said out in the open, you know. But it was. But it, it, it went underground, so to speak, at least in, in sort of common everyday language. But now, right. back, back then, you're absolutely right. It was in, in, in newspapers. It was in magazines. Uh, it, it was in other media, but it was also in the ways in which you know ordinary white people talk to one another about keeping uh, their, their their neighborhoods uh, uh, racially preserved for, for themselves. So, and it was not it wasn't yeah. only you know like the southern part of uh, Minneapolis. It was in the Como area. I mean, it was all over. So you know, you do have these neighborhoods that are oh sure are these pockets. And sometimes they are whole, these these kind of large swaths of blocks. Yes, but you also have these pockets. Of, of of whiteness that existed in in the Como area and in, even in on the, on the Saint Paul side so of the river as well. Let's bring this forward to today, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, to make the point, because I want to watch our time here. I've got a lot of a couple of other things I want to ask you, but to bring forward how structural racism works, the the folks that are up uh, around Chicago and Thirty Eighth who own homes, those homes, the black folks that own those homes, those homes have X value now, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. But the homes down in Nokomis, all right, or around Como, they have X plus plus value. Mm-hmm. And this is where we start talking literally about how structural racism kept people from building wealth. Do I have all of that right? Absolutely. Because wealth is accumulated 
and 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 wealth begets other kinds of wealth. So yeah. if you have um, property and a home, that may allow you to to get other property, or may allow you to acquire other assets. And certainly, those assets could be shifted; they could be passed down to your children. Uh, but they accrue in value, even if they lose value over the years. Uh, they are steadily accruing over the long term. And so you, you set up people back when you don't allow them that opportunity to, to own anything. And that's why I think uh, that in many ways, African-Americans are suffering today because they are they were locked out of the labor market. And if they were not completely locked out, they were at the bottom of the labor market. And then they didn't have the opportunity to acquire property. And so once you uh, keep a people in that position, they'll never be able to get out mm -hmm. of their circumstance. Because, again, we always talk about the great American dream. Well, the great American dream is all, always tied to one's ability to acquire yep. and to acquire things that have value. Yep. Okay. Now, two other things, okay? One is, um, what makes you an idealist, okay? You and I have to, be, you know, we talked about this, and, and you, I mean, I know, I mean, you're from the East Coast. Give us, why are you so passionate about this? Because, obviously, you had a great education. You could have gone in a, a, a number of different directions. Why is this your passion? It's a very good question, Ellie. I think that for me, looking at the history of black folks is to study the history of struggle. <laughs> and it's that struggle that allows black folks to see a brighter day. Now, that progress is always small and short and slow, but it's progress nonetheless. And again, I always tell students that that any oppressed people, not even just a racially oppressed people, politicians don't roll out of bed to give them anything. They had to fight for them. And so what gives me, what keeps me being an idealist is that as long as we continue to fight and we continue to stand up to injustice and we continue to demand better housing and, and better education and 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 our proper place in the society. And, and last year, I'll say last. Well, I was going to say last year being 2019. Now we're in 2021, but 20, 2019 was the 400th year uh, yep. anniversary of Black folks being in the country. Yep. That's 400 years of a people being here. I mean, the most Black people been here longer than most white people. So they got to continue to demand their place, their rightful place. So what keeps me an idealist is the fact that. The history of black America is the history of protest and struggle. And as long as black folks are continuing to willing to do that, I think that gives me hope. The day we stop doing that is the day I lose all hope because I know that hope, uh, that any hope that springs eternal, any hope that was able to galvanize and to procure what little crumbs black folks have. It's, it was because through the blood, sweat, and tears of black folks deciding that they were, would resist and, and demand more. But, Ellie, I got to tell you that oftentimes, as much as I am an idealist, I'm a cynic. And I can get very cynical at times and thinking that, man, this, this, this is, progress is moving so slow. Yep. You know, is it worth it all? And, and then I, you know, I go to bed and, and get up the next day and, and I return 
to being an idealist. So I go back and forth. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I well, say, I, I I, you know, forth. I think that what you're telling me is you're human. Um, yes. Okay. Two other things. One is uh, uh, you've got a book out. Uh, can you tell us about that? And then you have another one coming out. So I have a, a, a book I've written on civil rights, black power, Kwanzaa, holiday rituals. But I sort of turn my attention to educational history. I've been doing a lot of work in the public schools, developing ethnic studies programs. And I have a book out on the history of special education. And the book is called Unteachables. It's not out yet. Uh, will be won't be out actually until next year. So it'll be in production for one year. Okay. But I'm on, I'm at the tail end of of completing it and submitting it to the publisher, and it will be out. And it's on the history of the overrepresentation of Black students in special education, uh, particularly uh, EBD, emotional behavior disorder. Yep. So kind of a civil rights and disability rights movement history. Uh, I think that's uh, a great, but what a wonderful topic. Okay. Second thing, um, you you speak publicly. You go out. You don't just teach at the U. Not that that's not really important, but you go out and you speak. You also consult. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you, Dr. Mays, how can they do that? I'll just go to my website. Actually, just email me at Mays, M-A-Y-E-S, at U-M-N dot E-D-U, or go to my website, DrKeithAMays.com. Okay. And they can find me there. All right. And it's spelled M-A-Y-E-S. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Dr. Mays, you know, listen, I mean, last time you and I talked on the phone, we looked up, it was, I think we'd been speaking for an hour and 15 minutes. We're like, oh my gosh, it went so quickly. <laughs> you and I are on the same wavelength. And I, I, yes, I say that I'm honored. I mean, that I could even be close to your wavelength. And um, I appreciate that. You know, I, Stay um, stay in touch, my friend, okay? I sure will. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Continue, please, to do it. And when if, if you wake up one morning a cynic, will you make sure <laughs> you contact me, okay? You reach out, all right? I sure will. I'll, I'll talk you, off the, I'll talk you off, yes, the, off the ledge, all right? Yeah, I need, I'm going to need that in 2021, for sure. <laughs> okay, all right. It's been a great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for being talk on the you, show. Sir. All right, listeners, okay. so we've been speaking with Dr. Keith Mays. Um, from the University of Minnesota. Check him out at maze at umn.edu. That is his uh, email. And um, you can just Google him, Keith Mays, and you'll get his uh, bio from the U. All right, when we come back, we'll be doing my C block where I'll talk about uh, my work as an idealist. And uh, we'll be back in a second. Thanks. And then I think about my We're back. LA 2.0 Radio. I hope um, you enjoy Dr. Mays. And what he said in January of this year is applicable as November of this year. And unfortunately, I believe it's going to be as applicable in January of next year and so on and so forth. I am so incredibly disappointed. Yes. Okay. Um, more on that future shows. All right. C block. I talk about my work as an idealist, and um, you know, um, and in uh, some of this, my longtime listeners, you've already heard this, so bear with me, please. But you know, my day job, but pays the bills and keeps Jack and dog food, is uh, that I train and speak on 
diversity and inclusion. Now, it's not just a job. I am a hopeless idealist. That's why you're in on this show. All of that work means everything to me because it's about trying to make the world a better place. Now, I have a number of different talks, gray area thinking around human inclusivity, a talk on allyship, a talk on skin color, talk on how to be welcoming to LGBTQ people. I have one other talk. Well, I have others, but one of those other talks is a talk called Gleaning Authenticity. And it's my story, my story of struggling with my gender identity for 40 years and finally having a moment of truth, which I talked about on 9-11, which was the moment of truth where I realized that someday I would lay on my deathbed and I would hate myself for not having been braver to be me. Um, and this gleaning authenticity talk, I have to tell you, is not my favorite talk to give because I don't – notwithstanding, you know, I, I have this radio show, I don't really like to talk about me. I would much rather talk about the work that I'm doing or talk about you, talk about how we can all get together, how we can get along with each other better, how we can fight our fears, we can take risks and reach out to other. Boy, get me going and talking about that and I, you know, I'm not going to stop. But talking about me, ah, you know, I'm not a big fan of aggrandizement and you have heard that from me. And what is it? What happened this week? I had to give the talk twice. I gave uh, the talk yesterday to a law firm that has – ah, there's Jack barking a little bit uh, – to a law firm uh, that has a number of offices across the country. And then the day before that, so on Wednesday, I gave the talk to the Colorado Supreme Court, um, not to the court itself, but they had a commission on attorney well-being. I mean the statistics about attorney – attorneys suffering. I mean – Attorneys have – a third of attorneys have um, a drinking problem. Uh, almost a quarter of attorneys suffer from depression. You have a lot of attorney, a huge attrition rate, particularly among younger attorneys who are moving around from firm to firm because they can't find a place where they're happy or they feel valued. And so they brought me in to give a talk. We changed the title a little bit, Gleaning Authenticity – being uh, being brave to change or something like that, the courage to change. Um, and they brought me in to kind of like do a, you know, rah-rah, you lawyers who are on this. And we had maybe 70 people on the Zoom, but you lawyers have the ability to change, okay? You can do it. And, and the, my tagline during the talk was, well, you don't have to change your gender in order to change your life. <laughs> And, and at one point, we had some engagement with the audience, and we had we had a man who said, "I'm a dude. Haven't changed my gender. I like being a dude." <laughs> it was um, actually it was nice levity and fun. But I've got to tell you, I you know, a message from that talk is about the power of self compassion, about the about the need for us humans to be good to ourselves, for us to care about ourselves. And for me, from a compassion standpoint, if you don't care for yourself, if you're not good to yourself, it's so much easier to not be good to other people. And so on self-compassion front, you know, I, I talk to them about that and I talk to them about the need to ask one question every day. And everyone listening right now, this can apply to you as well. Not that Ellie Krug got the market on wisdom cornered by any stretch. But here's the question. 
Am I, am I doing, am I doing my best under current circumstances? That's the question. Am I doing my best under current circumstances? You got to throw the current circumstances in because they're always changing, you know, but if your answer back is, yep, under present circumstances right now, as they stand, I'm doing my best. Why can't that be good enough? Really? We push ourselves to this perfection standard. And I just got to tell you, humans aren't perfect. And when we strive for perfection because we're not going to get it, we suffer. We do. We suffer greatly. But I also wanted to tell you about that talk because um, after, uh, afterwards, one of the comments I got was from somebody who was, uh, helped me get into the place to talk, to do the talk. Her name is Amy Phillips. She's an attorney in Colorado. And she gave me this quote. She said, Ellie, your talk helped us rem- helped remind us this. And here's the quote that we need to carry. Yet you need to carry your own sparks forward. Carry your own sparks forward. That's the quote. <laughs> I had never heard that before. I wrote back to her and I said, I'm going to use it and give you attribution, which I just did, Amy Phillips. But think of that. It's true. We have to carry our own sparks forward. Remember that. Now, we've had a request from somebody on Facebook Live that they get to see Jack. Brett's going to pause uh, this for a second, and then I'm going to get Jack out from under the table so folks who are watching on Facebook Live can see my little puppy. He Jack briefly surfaced <laughs> because he is doing. He wants to get this chew done before we're over because he knows I'm going to take the chew <laughs> from him. All right, okay, we're back on live. All right, listeners, in that little interlude where we cut out, um, I did bring Jack out from underneath the table so our Facebook Live folks can see him. And if you saw him, hopefully you saw him on Facebook Live and you love him as much as I do. Oh, let me just tell you, I love that boy. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. Well, that's another show. Um, big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson, who's always rolling with the punches with Ellie Krug. A big thanks to you, my listeners, for tuning in. Please tell others about this show, okay? I'm, you know, the numbers are going up slowly, and uh, I just I like being here. Next week, 200 episodes of Ellie 2.0. Going back to January of 2017. Can you believe that? Wow. All right. I'll see you next week. In the meantime, go out and make the world a better place. Thanks. Bye-bye.